Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. Thank you for listening to the show. Minister Faust is a journalist. He's a novelist. He's a teacher. He's a writer. He's a multi-hyphenate um, who is a wonderful thinker, an Afrotopianist, and we get to that why he prefers the term Afrotopia over Afrofuturist. Um, and just an incredible thinker and a, and a, and a very forward-thinking individual. I really love this conversation because I learned a lot. Um, I learned about uh, where his mind is and where he's coming from with his philosophy, how strong he is in his conviction about uniting African people and taking charge of our African history and our future and decolonizing and democratizing the future in ways and ideas that are both creative and attainable. Um, he has a wonderful knack for knowing and, and using language and words um, in its very specific sense. He means what he says. And I appreciate that because you always know where he's coming from and you always feel his honesty when he says it and his passion about what he believes and what he says. One of the things that I really loved about talking to him was talk, asking him about where he came up with the title for his books because there's just such wonderful amalgams of words put together. When I first when you see the saw title, title book, when you hear the title, like, okay, I, I got to know what this is about. For example, he has a book so we talk about that and we talk about titles. We also go off on a little bit of a tangent um, and we talk about roots and it's something that uh, I've been talking about quite a lot yesterday because I am of the age where roots was on television and uh, my parents sat my family down to watch it. And it was such a traumatizing, eye opening, amazing experience. And uh Minister Faust and I talk about how we are as storytellers, as media professionals, as people who are in the zeitgeist of talking about African history, how sometimes we can get stuck in the roots uh, narrative of telling our stories. And um, maybe there is a, a need to embrace uh, our stories in a way that doesn't focus on the trials and the horrors and the, and the tribulations of being enslaved. We talk about his love of science fiction and how he fused his idea of activism and consciousness with science fiction along with a rich history of the empires of um, Africa. All right, so I'm done talking because Minister Faust is, is riveting and, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation. So please enjoy Minister Faust. Minister Faust, welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. And um, thanks for um, being able to do it on Mountain Time, which is a rarity <laughs> For the Afrofuturist <laughs> podcast, we're usually either coast, but mountain time, like it's just a wonderful little reminder that there's more to the North American diaspora than <laughs> East and West Coast. I'm glad, I am glad to broaden everyone's horizons and, and their recognitions in that way. Yeah, we really appreciate that. So um, I really want to find out where the minister of Minister Faust came from. What was the... Okay 
etymology of the minister in Minister Faust? Sure. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I get asked this question a lot. And with um, with everybody else, I have always found a way for the last 20 years to dodge answering the question, because in reality, the, the real answer is pretty boring. But because it's you and also with uh, your, your, your colleague, Lonnie, I am going to actually answer the question truthfully. And I think this will be the only time I will ever do that. <laughs> it's an exclusive. And then afterwards, you'll go like, hey, when he said it was boring, he wasn't kidding. Um, so uh, here we go. Um, when I was in high school, uh, some friends and I founded uh, an underground newspaper. And to put this into context, this was at a, a pretty straight-laced academic high school. And it was a boring environment, not very creative. It had no real arts programs. And so, you know, we said, let's, this is the dawn of desktop publishing, by the way. We're talking like 1985, 86. So like, you know, th this stuff had just never been done. So uh, my friends mostly did kind of goofy, humorous stuff. And I, I was given the chance to write two columns and one of them was more goofy than the other and the other was more serious. And so I needed two pen names for each of these columns. One was Specs Muhammad. And as you can see on the camera, I'm still wearing glasses to this day curse these eyes. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. And then the other one, um, I wanted a name that, uh, because, you know, look, I was a 16 year old and I was a little bit, maybe hoity toity is the word. A lot of kids who go to academic high schools want to try to, instead of flexing their muscles, they want to try to flex their brains in front of other people. So I was aware of something called Occam's Razor. This comes from a science, well, it's an old, you, you know the concept, and I learned about it by reading a Star Trek novel called Planet of Judgment by Joe Haldeman when I was in grade three, and Occam's Razor says the simplest explanation with the fewest variables is most likely to be correct. And so I thought, well, if you use Occam's Razor to, to explain Occam's Razor, you'd say, make it fast. So I gave myself the pen name, make it Faust, because I was also a little bit interested in the story of Faust. Now, as it turned out, once I started doing hip hop about three years later, and I used make it Faust as, a, as, a, as my stage name, because back then everybody had a stage name, Chuck D and Ice Cube and Ice T and everybody else, I, um, I found that everybody introduced me on stage got my name wrong. And it would come out as Naked Faust and McKit Faust and all kinds of embarrassing, humiliation, humiliating things. And then a couple of years later, as I was doing a lot of reading about the Black Panther Party, I became fascinated by the, the way that the leadership in the organization was all called ministers, as in Minister of Culture, like Emory Douglas, Minister of Defense, like Huey P. Newton. So I, 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 my group was called the Militant Rap Party. I named myself the Minister of Defense. And then it was Minister Fence, make it Faust, and people still got to make it wrong. I condensed it, Minister Faust, and then suddenly people just remembered this name. And it was it was awesome because like I could just say the name once, people remembered it. I would request to do interviews with people, and they would say, like, oh yeah, sure, this mysterious name. I contacted a famous television producer to do an interview. He said, oh, I will talk to anybody named Faust. I thought, that's great. I was reporting, uh, I went to the Million Man March to report for my Afrocentric radio program, and I still have on my audio recordings somebody who'd seen me perform in Toronto at a poetry event four years before. I can, on my microphone, you can, you can hear somebody say, hey, aren't you Minister Faust? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm in Washington, D.C., and somebody from Toronto still remembers this pen name. So 
pen names, you know, they can be um, a good way to uh, give you a little bit of mystique, get people interested in you, and also encourage an awful lot of people to accuse you of being pretentious or pompous or whatever else. And you know what? Those people I don't really care about. I'm quite happy for the ones who like it. So that's my long-winded, exclusive explanation of the name. Well, that's a really great um, explanation, and it kind of explains. Um, there are two things that I've I heard in, in what you were talking about. One is, you know, the fact that the Black Panther Party uh, really uh, inspired you to take the minister title, right? Yeah. And then the other thing was Occam's Razor. You found in a Star Trek novel. That's right. right. Yeah. So you have the Black Panther Party and Star Trek, and now together, Minister Faust writes mm -hmm. The Alchemist of Kutch, Shrink right. the Hero, Space Age Bachelor Plan. It kind of all makes sense, right? right? So when did the two meet? When did Minister Faust meet sci-fi and the future? Yeah, well, great question. I suppose, I mean, you know, me as a, as a kid growing up, um, you know, I first, long before I took on the name, the pen name Minister Faust, you know, I was in the, you know, sitting on my mother's knee in the early 1970s, her reading a Robert Heinlein book, Red Planet, to me. And, you know, early on loving that experience, you know, as I hope all parents get to experience of reading to your children, especially when they're either cuddled next to you on the bed or sitting on your lap. And then watching Star Trek in its early reruns in the early 1970s and, and loving, you know, very science fictional fantasy cartoons like Spider-Man. And it, I don't know if it, most of your listeners in the United States would know a famous Canadian cartoon called Rocket Robin Hood. But it was I don't know, this insane <laughs> cartoon with lots of science fiction stuff stolen from every other source. And so I just grew up with comics and science fiction and all this. And, you know... I'm sure you will, I I would imagine you would relate to this. I watched Roots as it came out, um, you know, in the first, you know, screening. And this was the first, I think, U.S. miniseries. And it was the biggest U.S. television event there'd ever been at that point. And even in Canada, we were watching it. And so, you know, my mom and my sisters and I, we would crowd on the couch and we, we watched every episode of this. And, um, you know, I mean, I can say now <laughs> that it was a really traumatic experience. And uh, and I I guess I didn't appreciate I always viewed it as really eye opening. And then, I mean, I later, you know, especially becoming a dad, I thought, is this something now? I'm not blaming my mom. I'm glad my mom showed it to me. Nobody knew what it was going to be like. I mean, my mom had read the book already. But, you know, I, now would I show this to my children? And the answer is. If we focus teaching the history of African peoples everywhere in the world on the experience of genocidaires and enslavers who committed unspeakable brutality to us for centuries, then we focus our identity on the very worst that has happened to us instead of the very best that we have created. And that is a great way of colonizing our imaginations and making sure that we stay tiny to the extent that there are many people who love being called the N-word but would fight you if you ever called them Africans. So that is a great you know, example for me of where even when we think we can, are going right, we can go wrong. Science fiction was that opportunity to imagine the worlds I wanted to live in, the worlds I wanted to be part of. And yet, as you well know, 
so much of U.S. science fiction production imagined basically a future in which there had been a genocide that was never referred to, and it was a genocide of all Africans, indigenous people, Asians, and oceanic people. So it was it was an all-European future. And even then, it was a narrow European future. There were all kinds of Europeans who were excluded. Science fiction, now, as we continue on, though, you know, there's the creation of this term Afrofuturism. It's built right into the name of the podcast. It comes from the, you know, the scholar Mark Derry. And what I, you know, when this term was first applied to my work in 2004, my novel, The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, I'd never heard the term before in 2004. And the first thing that struck me was, well, I've written a novel in contemporary Canada, Edmonton, the book's set in 1995, and the term futurism is applied. And I thought, well, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I live now. The story is now. And then what do we do with the work of people like Brother Charles Saunders, an African-American writer of Imaro? He comes to Canada, becomes an African-Canadian. He's writing an alternate African past in the same way that, you know, Tolkien wrote an alternate European, like a, an, an other world Europe, right? A fantastical one, exactly. So how do you... So that isn't the future. So it's, in fact, it's a whole other world. And what if we're writing about the actual past set in Egypt, as I did in, in, for instance, The Alchemists of Kush? So the word futurism doesn't apply to those things. And one of the ways that white supremacy works is to tell us that all of our past doesn't matter, which means that we don't matter now. And it certainly means we can't create a future unless we are very narrowly rebuilt to be as almost as invisible as possible so that you get in a lot of Star Trek, which I know a lot of people love and I grew up loving, but what we get is we have to fit these very, very narrow Anglo-American norms of the way we talk and dress and think and worship or don't worship. So to me, Afrotopianism, which is what I call my project, is creating work that lets us defy every aspect of white supremacy, not because our central goal is to focus on, on white supremacy, but rather... Because our past, our present, and our future is our business, and it is the source of all of our power and our glory and our beauty, and I can't think of any other place that would be better to be. I, I love that, and um, I'm glad you got to Afrotopianism because um, doing my research on you and watching you and, and listening to and reading uh, a lot of your work, you focus very much on the etymology of words and the power of those words and how specifically um, the way those words are put together can incite imagination, emotion, story, all of these things just based on the word. Um, can you break down where you got Afrotopianism from how you put the word together, and then how you found the definition to expand upon it and use it as the way you define your work. Sure. Well, when I wrote uh, The Coyote Kings back in, in two, well, in the early 2000s, and it was published in 2004, I was trying to come up with a, an alternate for the expression cyberpunk. And, you know, cyberpunk was a, a weird, I mean, it's a good word, it's a fine word, but, um, although, and, it, and it's absolutely true that African artists in, in North America and in England had, in fact, been at the foundation of punk music. But it was also clear, no matter how much I enjoyed much of that work, it was also clear that the broad majority of us did not 
uh, at that time see punk music as a reflection of themselves. Now, that that's unfortunate, but but it's clear that they didn't. Whereas it was obvious that hip-hop music for, for many people of our generation was absolutely uh, a place where we saw ourselves reflected. Doesn't mean that it appealed to all of us and there were plenty of problems with it, but but nevertheless. So I, I came up with this term Imhotep-hop, and that was a combination of the name Imhotep, the brilliant African uh, of Egypt, uh, architect, prime minister or grand vizier of Egypt, doctor, poet, the first recorded multi-genius in human history, and one of the most influential people uh, ever. And I wanted to combine that with the name hip-hop. So I had Imhotep-hop. And the problem was that uh, if you come up with a term that immediately makes people unable to pronounce it or get you know confused by it, it's not that they failed, it's that I, as the coiner, have failed. I mean, it's like if you design a fork that cuts people's hands, you can't blame the user. <laughs> so I decided, okay, that term is not going to work. And then I was kind of looking for a while, what am I going to call what I'm trying to do? And then I realized like, well, you know, the thing about utopian fiction, which has got a long history, is that, you know, going to the word utopia, you know, the prefix ooh, as in no, and topos meaning place, so it's a no place, you're imagining something that is by implication better than what we've got now. We have to make it though. And I love that because it requires our effort. It's not something we can inherit. It's not something that's gonna be delivered to us and it's certainly not gonna be provided for us by oppressors. We will make it. And this is at a time when dystopian fiction had become probably it reached its absolute peak. I mean, I would assume there's more books, more dystopian books published now than it ever, you know, in history. Yeah, and dystopian work, as in much as I find much of it enjoyable and it's important to warn people, it does demoralize many people. And it also, much of it doesn't focus on realistic paths out. And if the only path out of dystopia is taking up arms, academic research proves that, you know, that... You're more likely to have a, and I'm saying this even as a follower of Malcolm X, that a nonviolent struggle has been documented to be more likely to succeed even against totalitarian regimes. And I'm about results. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, fall in love with methods. I want what are the results? And if a nonviolent revolution gets us where we want to be, great. So, Afrotopia is founded on all of our magnificent civilizations from ancient Egypt and Sudan and the, the Swahili speaking civilization of the coast and Great Zimbabwe and uh, in West Africa, Uganda, Songhai, Mali, and then there's the Congo in Central Africa. And, and then of course there's our, our empire in Spain, the, the Moors, who many people think are Arabs, but they were in fact you know, Africans from West and North Africa. So all of that is the past that we draw upon, our heritage, then that informs who we can be right now to create the world we want. You put it all together, it's Afrotopia. And I was happy to see that a lot of people immediately got it. You know, they just, they would hear it, they go like, yes, I know what you're talking about in a way that just never happened with Imhotepa. Where did this love for Africa come from? And um, the reason why I'm asking that is because there are a lot of um, Americans of African descent who 
define themselves as Americans first. Yes. And they try to um, distance themselves from an African reality. Um, yes. And the one thing I think that we all have, uh, all of us who are from African descent in common is we, the continent of Africa. That's, That's right. a place we can go back to. Um, yes. My parents were, you know, West Indian on my father's side. My mother's side were, you know, American from a, a long lineage of, yes. you know, enslaved to the present. But they were right. extremely focused on that solidarity with the African continent. So that's yes. why, you know, I have the name that I have. That's why um, things of, you know, diasporic African etymology and, and origins interest me. And that's why I love thinking about the future through that lens. Where did that come from from you? Well, thank you so much for asking me that and also for telling me that about your own past. And I'm, I'm always delighted when I hear from other people, other Africans in any other part of the world, when they express, often is it coming from their parents, this love of Africa and not love in a, um, you know, of a fantasy Africa where people say we were all kings and queens. Like, obviously, not everybody was a king or a queen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense, you know, but actually learning, you know, and so for me, you know, my mother, my given name, um, rather than my pen name, my, my given name is Malcolm. Uh, my mother named me after Malcolm X. And Malcolm X was one of the most remarkable articulators of Pan-Africanist spirit and love and progress that the 20th century could have ever given us. And, you know, he, like many other people, as you know, when you're given a name like that, you kind of learn this is something I'm supposed to try to live up to, <laughs> you know, at least in my own meager, failing way. I, I got to try. And Malcolm X loved etymology. He loved he loved learning about and teaching people the origins of words because it's like every word is um, it's like a treasure chest. And all you got to do is you just have to open that lock, get that combination, pop that thing open and see all the glories that are there. So. When uh, I'll tell you a little story. When I was uh, about eight, and I think this is after you know a couple of years after Roots came on, my mom and I were driving down the street, and my mother said, uh, "I I don't I don't know what made me say this to my mother, but I said maybe slavery was a good thing because it gave us civilization," and my mother pulled over the car and said, "Absolutely not." And then she said, you come from people who were doctors and who charted the stars and who created the pyramids. And then she a whole bunch of other list of accomplishments. And she said, this is your hair, not all the the destruction that was done to you, this these glories. And I'm so glad that I said the foolish thing that I said. I mean, I was a child. But it was a, it was a it was a foolishness that you know really the the television series Roots had allowed me to believe because Roots does not present African civilizations at all no matter how excellent it is as a work of performance and music and all that it still entirely uh, eliminates a presentation and dramatization of African civilizations so you know as time went on I, obviously I read I read. The first Malcolm X book I read was From the Dead Level, Malcolm X and Me. Then I read the autobiography. Then I read a whole bunch of others. I started to get access. And of course, you you well remember that long before we had an internet and we could just look stuff up and get all kinds of photos. I mean, you, you had the library. 
And fortunately, we had a lot of great books at the Edmonton Public Library. I could start to do this research, but there was no like streaming videos. I couldn't learn this stuff. And then there were there were documentaries. Ali Mazrui, the great Kenyan academic, had a series on called The Africans of Triple Heritage. And then there was the great, uh, although Eyes on the Prize doesn't touch anything on the African continent, it still was a demonstration of heroism. And all of it, you know, excited me and thrilled me. And so the more I learned, the more I loved what I discovered. And, you know, when people have been made ashamed, I understand why they why they stay away from a thing. And they were told in so many ways, hate Africa. Africa is savagery and backwardness and anti-civilization and, and lies like cannibalism and ooga booga nonsense. So I understand why many people, how could they not? fall prey to those lies when those lies were inflicted upon us for the very specific reason of attacking the thing that you described that your parents loved, which was solidarity among Africans across the world. Because if Africans in North America and the Caribbean and Brazil and elsewhere say, I have a home base, I have land, I have a place that belongs to us because as Malcolm X said, land is the basis of all independence then I automatically know there are people over there with whom I can do economic trade. We can build wealth together. We can exchange cultural ideas and artistic practices. We can, like right today in the 21st century, we can have technical, technological alliances. I mean, a lot of things that to this day, these fantasies that people in North America have, including many of our own people, about backwardness across the African continent. I say, think of anything that you love right now. You love robotics? Why don't you just Google Nigeria and robotics? And you will discover a bunch of high school robotics teams and university technicians. Space travel, Nigeria uh, with its own space program. They're not putting people in space right now, but what they are doing is they're sending up satellites um, and many, all of these other things. You love animation, you love digital 3D animation. Kenya is a hub. Uh, you know, every technological achievement you could imagine in medicine and the arts and, and, and everything else. I mean, I'm, uh, you will find it in many countries across the African continent. The only thing that is required is for you to start looking for it. And people like you, Ahmed, who are broadcasting and podcasting and letting people know are a critical part of the dissemination of this information. Not just teach each one, teach one, but each one teach a thousand. So I love it because it's beautiful. And I think that the whole world loves, I mean, we're going to exclude Nazis from this conversation, but the, but the rest of the world loves African beauty and I don't mean in the way that, you know, Greg Tate said, you know, they want everything about us but the burden. I mean, if you look at the success of the movie Black Panther, obviously we turned out in the millions. When we dressed in magnificent clothing from the African continent, which showed how that pan-African spirit was alive and, and well. But millions of non-Africans turned out. And why? They were not turning out to see... You know, that same crowd, they weren't there to watch a dramatized Dr. Dre, uh, uh, you know, a beat up a woman reporter as he did in real life or watch the degradation of African men and women across the United States or them earn millions of dollars from telling stories about our degradation. They were there. All of them were there to watch African people as heroes, scientists, world changers. In other words, Millions and millions of people, non-Africans and Africans alike, 
love watching African genius. Very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really get to do this, and this is just a little bit of an aside, but um, you've mentioned Roots twice. Right. And, you know, we're probably of the same age, and I remember watching Roots and, and it being traumatic, you know, yes. for lack of a better word. It was absolutely yeah. traumatic. And yeah. it wasn't because I didn't know those stories, but the horrors of those stories were just on, you know, it was on TV. Yeah. And it was very accessible. And I remember my parents being um, emphatically just they 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 really wanted us to absorb this story. Right. Yeah. They wanted us to. It was it was I think. And for black folk, I think across the country, it was not across the United States. It was more about making this story tangible than it was knowing this story. Right. Yes. And I think it affected um, the white folk in um, America differently. I think it was just like <laughs> this. Yes. You should feel bad about this. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for for us, it was like this is what it looked like. And this is one of the reasons why you're here. Do you feel that we're stuck in the roots way of telling African stories? Man, brother, that is such a magnificent question you asked. Like, that is one of the best questions I have ever, uh, that's ever been posed to me. And I think it's one of the most important ones for artists and writers and thinkers and other cultural creators and even social policy creators to address. And it goes to the heart of what I do in a lot of the educational work that I do in, in African-Canadian communities of all backgrounds, Somalis, Sudanese, Ugandans, et cetera, right here in Edmonton. And it's a project that, unfortunately, uh, the, the acronym sadly overlaps with an acronym that Nazis love. So our acronym is SMAGA, okay? And that is Super Mega Awesome Global Africans. And so what I do is, um, you know, as I teach courses in, in to, uh, to youth in both leadership, and so we t I teach leadership skills, public speaking, community organizing, how to, you know, raise funds, how to design projects, et cetera, emotional intelligence. And then I use case studies from African histories of leaders, scientists, feminists, inventors, everybody else, uh, in order to inspire the youth uh, so that they can say, hey, that's me, I can do that too. And... I start from the basic awareness, and I'd always, I had suspected this for a long time, for like since about 2007, when I made a change in my own broadcasting, I was a community broadcaster, and I stopped presenting so many bad news stories, and I started presenting a lot more stories of us being awesome. And I, partly I was inspired by TED Talks, and uh, so I suspected that always emphasizing oppression had the result of make of really bumming us out <laughs> you know that we were going to just say like well why try and i'm sure that african parents across you know the united states and canada many of them have used this phrase you've got to be twice as good to get half as much and, and as a a brother friend of mine who is a uh, psychologist said you know that's a great way to demoralize kids <laughs> And I thought, oh, <laughs> I'd never thought of it like that. And then I realized, yes, that is so true. So once I started emphasizing 
our beauty, our magnificence, our glory, and not in an empty way, not in, in the kind of the, the nonsense fantasies where people will say stuff that is obviously untrue. Like if somebody tells you that the ancient Egyptians had, you know, uh, powered flight, you know, or, you know, like, I don't, I don't mean nonsense. I'm talking about stuff that's grounded in absolute scientific, clear reality, you know, um, then you just, you love it. You fall in love in the same way that, you know, you and I, we, 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 you know, around the same age, probably a lot of the same loves growing up. We could watch stories about Asia and love seeing their magnificence. And we probably also could enjoy stories about European knights and dragons and dragons aren't real, but we could enjoy those too. Right. And about the Mayans and Aztecs. Why shouldn't we do that about Africa? Why shouldn't the world do that? So then came the proof. A few years ago, a Google scientist, uh, and I've forgotten his name, and he published an article on this. Um, he was uh, assessing Google search results after a speech by then U.S. President Barack Obama, who had said that uh, basically he had decried racism and, dis uh, and especially against African people. And what he discovered in the search results was that as soon as he did that, or the day within 24 hours, there was a massive spike in search for racist, anti-African jokes and comments and articles and everything else. Now, don't don't get me wrong here. I utterly disagree with Morgan Freeman saying that the way to stop racism is to stop talking about it. That's like saying you could stop capitalism by not talking about it or cancer. And that that is nonsense. The issue is when do you talk about it? in what context for the maximum result of eradicating it. So evidently, at least according to this Google data scientist, the White House must have learned about his, about his results because Obama shortly after gave another talk in which he emphasized his talk was about African-Americans and Muslim Americans and presumably African Muslim Americans who had done major things. They were military heroes, hopefully not of U.S. imperialism, but they were champions, they were scientists, they were inventors, whatever else. And of course, as you can tell where I'm going with this story, the results were a massive upsurge in searches for us as heroes. So the simple reality is, spend, I would put it like this, spend 90% of the time magnifying us being awesome and 10% of the time attacking the crimes against us because basically it 10% uh, poison get, can be canceled out. I mean, when I say canceled, it can be balanced effectively by 90% health. Uh, you push more than that because of the way that our brain is wired to, to uh, look for threats. It's kind of like if, if, you know, if you give a great performance and nine critics love your work in something, and one says, that guy should quit acting forever. <laughs> you know, you just, you can only think of that one terrible review and it grinds on you. And your friends say, but you got nine great reviews. But our brain is designed for the one in 10 threat, right? So if we spend more, and a lot of us, you know, you will see a lot of us even say that we love Africa, or et cetera, but we don't have the facts. And I'm not blaming individuals for being busy. I'm saying that for you, for me, for other artists, public intellectuals, whatever else, our job is to deliver the facts and everybody else's job is to tweet and repost and share those facts and design their community programs. And there's lots of people doing it. And every time we see somebody who's doing it is to show off their work. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. 
um, especially with the 90%, 10% rule. I think, um, I think it's about time we start doing that. We've tried yeah. it the other way for quite a while. <laughs> yep. You know, I think <laughs> yes. it's, I think we can try something else. And, yep. and specifically with your writing as, as, um, as a writer of fiction with that future in mind, with the African-centered yeah. future in mind, um, how did you come about deciding to um, write like that? Especially coming from the world of journalism, where right. everything is based on, or not everything, but mostly based on research, fact-based um, storytelling. Well, I have to commend you because you're the first person who's ever asked me that question. And I will say that, um, you know, my desire to write fiction predated my desire to write journalism. But I was getting paid to do journalism before I was, you know, publishing novels. And, you know, I worked in community radio. I worked in Arts Weekly. I mean, I was a freelancer at Arts Weeklies. I did some a little bit of freelancing for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and others. But then I started to have some books come out. But what I tell anybody, my creative writing students, anybody else who is interested in being a writer of fiction is you can only get better as a writer of fiction if you will do good quality journalism. And I don't mean I don't mean writing opinion pieces. I mean, even like the work that you're doing right now, which is interviewing people, is critical because you hear their voices, not your own. By you asking questions, and, I've liked, and I'm, I'm not just trying to butter you up, I mean, twice or three times I've said to you, that's a great question. And I mean that because as an interviewer, I crave to ask the best possible question. And when I hear another interviewer do it, I always want to say, nice one, <laughs> you know, you know. Because like good questions open up everything, right? And through an interview, my favorite moments are when I can get a person to say, I've never been asked that. And it's clear the person's really having to think of an answer because this gives that person a chance to grow. So when writers will do journalism, they will have to learn more about all kinds of people. And I'm sure you've experienced the people. I mean, they're, and I'm not trying to say this disparagingly. I'm trying to say this descriptively. There would be white liberal writers who want to write what they call diversely. And so what they want is they want to figure out other people so that they can write about them. And I always want to say, like, well, first of all, the best thing would be get a time machine, go back and relive your life so that you are actually knowing people your whole life. Because I don't, I don't know why you self-segregated and don't know people. That would be my, you know, and of course that would be sarcastic and mean-spirited because they can't get a time machine. But I would certainly say to them realistically, look, instead of choosing to write about people you've never met, like live a little. <laughs> go, you know, like go, go meet people, you know, and not, not in an icky kind of like, I want to be your friend so I can write about you. Like not like that. I mean, actually get to know awesome people. And, you know, for instance, um, even if you and I, to use the old word race, even if we weren't the same race, we, based on just what we've talked about so far, we'd probably have a number of similar interests. And so we would connect on those things. Uh, we, 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 we might, for instance, just connect on science fiction or connect by, by being around the same age and, and musical influences, right? So connect on the things that you would connect on. Because obviously you and I, we might be, we know plenty of people who are of the same race that we have nothing in common with. And so we're not friends with them. So if you are, for instance, a white liberal writer and you want to get to know people, 
actually assume that there are awesome people that, you know, you might, if you're polite and fun and a good friend, that you might get to know and then you won't get to learn. So, you know, we we get this chance through the writing to open up uh, the imagination of our readers. They can ask questions that they never asked before. They can empathize with people that they have never met. They can change the way they view the world and they can get simplistic, destructive solutions that they would get in a lot of science fiction and fantasy where the solution to all your problems is kill them all. Because that that's really the message of, let's say, Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> kill them all. They're all bad. And in fact, you know, in the movies, the 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 orcs and the, I mean, the Urukai are literally born out of mud, which means that like the neo-Nazi phrase, mud people, right? So kill them all. Or you get in some really fascinating stuff like the Battlestar Galactica television series that says we are locked in this existential struggle where we can pretty much absolutely guarantee we can wipe each other out. Or we can see that we have absolutely no choice but to connect. And maybe we got a future that way. And I, you know, I have completely lost the train of your question and I apologize. And I was hoping that if I just babbled long enough, I would find it. And I, I have lost the, <laughs> the dog is over the horizon now. No, it was about you um, going from journalism and research and, and into um, writing novels and science fiction. And I, I think you, you answered it very well. I mean, um, you have to have a, a foundation in what you're talking about and a direction to go. And rather than completely fabricating a reality with absolutely no experience, what journalism yes. was, was experience that helped you formulate the story. And I agree with you. I talk to, you know, a lot of young artists about um, living because a lot of them don't. They go from school to school to school and then they have these PhDs and then they leave school and then they try to write about something. <laughs> yep. And, you know, what I usually say is go get some life on you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Go out there and, and get your heart broken, as Shaka Khan said, you know? Yes. You have to do that in order to write that story and come up with whatever the title of that story is going to be which kind of leads me to the titles of your stories because the titles <laughs> nice segue. That <laughs> Thank <was> you. Awesome. <laughs> the title of your stories are so incredibly interesting. And um, where do you come up with it? And does the story precede the title? Do you think about the title first? And I'm specifically talking about the coyote Kings of the space age bachelor pad because no idea where some a story like that would come from and then a title like that would come from but as soon as i read it i'm just like i have to figure out what that's about like i really want to see that you know, you know i've been wait i've been waiting 15 years to be asked that question you know seriously <laughs> like these are the questions that i i love being asked because you know you are focusing on these very specific details of the craft that matter to me a lot and so I even remember reading, I don't know how long ago, it might have been the 1990s, but Chuck D saying in an interview that, you know, he spent a lot of time crafting these provocative titles. And, you know, you look, especially I think of the, the, the song names on Fear of a Black Planet, even the album name, each one sparks your imagination, you know? And so Coyote Kings, it began as a screenplay, 1994, I start formulating it. I, I write uh, the first draft in 1995. And what I did was, I, you know, I was, 
like I had delusions of becoming an individual of an indie filmmaker, right? And I read all Spike Lee's making of books, and I figured I can do this, you know, which is like how you destroy your life. <laughs> I can do this, you know. <laughs> so at any rate, so I um I wanted uh, I knew like titles because I loved good titles. I knew you got to have provocative words, words that just catch your imagination. And go like, what the heck is that? Because you can't have these utterly empty Steven Seagal titles like Above the Law and, you know, Faster Than Cops or, you know, Run With Blades or whatever he calls them, right? Because they're generic. You need something that only you would come up with. So I just really, I, I, I started writing down because I'm a big fan of, of true brainstorming where you, you really, and, a, you know, a lot of people have sat in, in corporate offices. They've been told they're doing brainstorming when they're not. And with real brainstorming, like I'm sure you've done improv in your career and you know, you say yes to things, right? So you write down, you don't censor yourself. And I was coming up with words that I just liked and you know, coyote, um, I had like the expression silver dollar. I was listening to, uh, I think it's Don Drummond, the Jamaican jazz artist. And I had, so in the first draft of the book, silver dollars are a big part of it in the screenplay and, and all these words. And I was mixing and matching them at coyote dollars and silver coyotes. And then there was a bunch of other words there. And finally I came up with, I just had coyote Kings and I thought, I just love how that looks, you know? I just love that. And I also actually, um, I, although I wasn't a fan of the Mexican artist uh, Esquivel, I knew of the title of his album. And I, I don't mean I was against him. I just meant I didn't know his work. Um, and he had an album, an influential album called Space Age Bachelor Pad. So I'd also had like Coyote Bachelors and all kinds of stuff. And, and then, um, but the screenplay, I just gave it the name The Coyote Kings. And then when it came time to craft the novel, I thought, you know what, I can go longer on, on the title because you've got a little bit more leeway in book titles than in film titles. So I started redoing it and I had a bunch like The Coyote Kings Sing to the Dark ma Magic Moon or a bunch of other stuff. And stuff I liked, but I thought, you know, that that is that doesn't have any kind of science fictional aspect to it. That sounds like just fantasy. And I thought, The Coyote Kings of the space age bachelor pad and it had that kind of you know young man generation x uh all this other kind of stuff with magic and weird stuff mixed in and i i just i got thrilled i got excited and you know and what i found was that as reviews started to come out and reader feedback came in a lot of people really they really dug it they 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 were on the same page and so then, you know, like I'm working on a sequel right now, you know, 15 years later, which is a little late by most people's standards. But, um, you know, that that one is called I grew up loving the toys called the Micronauts. I don't know if you ever. OK, so, you know, OK, you know, the Micronauts and you might have read the comics. And I, I OK, there we see. We, we, I can't believe it's taken us this long to connect. But so I love the Micronauts. And so I um, uh, and then I became really fascinated by um, all this stuff about. Uh, the ways that there, you know, there are giant mushrooms, like the, the biggest mushroom in the world is is like the biggest thing that it, that it is alive. It's like many kilometers wide. It's underground and, and all these effects on the mind of psychedelic or as it's called, entheogenic mushrooms and all kinds of amazing stuff. And so then I, I had this term instead of micronauts, it was myconauts. And then that relates to my new book. And so I have the Coyote Kings versus the myconauts of Plutonium City. And I just like to, yeah, thank you. So I just, you know, I have fun mixing these things together. And, you know, with like another title, The Alchemist of Kush, um, and it's funny the ways that culture in North America, we can live next to each other, we can be similar to each other. But if you say to, I would say the 
majority of Africans, even who don't think of themselves as particularly Afrocentric, if you say Kush to them, most of them know that either through the Bible or through history, they know that's an African kingdom. And you say that, and I am not teasing our European cousins and fellow human beings and fellow citizens of North American countries, but the majority didn't think it's a drug reference. <laughs> okay, so so it's funny how when I get two different reactions to the alchemists of Kush, and if all I had to go on was as a text message, I would know the race of the person who was responding to the title. And I didn't set it up as a trap, I just discovered that as it went along. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that many European readers have, have loved the book, but I, I was happy that a lot of African readers who would read this would go like, oh, I, I think I know where you're going on this, you know. So uh, title and, you know, one of my books, um, uh, it's funny, the uh, it had a title. It's, I wrote a book about superheroes uh, in therapy. And, you know, and it's really about the Bush administration. <laughs> and celebrity culture and all that. And um, I wanted to call it um, Unmasked. Uh, was this, the subtitle is um, When Being a Superhero Can't Save You From Yourself. Because the, the book is actually, it, it, it takes the form of a self-help book written by the analyst who's treating these superheroes. And um, so, uh, but the editor wouldn't go for the title. So publish the book, book does well, wins an award, gets shortlisted for another award, gets on lots of, I mean, I'm not trying to be a braggy guy here, but I don't get many books to brag about, so I gotta, I gotta squeeze it in somehow. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, I get finally, you know, I, the, the book stops selling copies, so I, I'm able to get the rights back, and I finally come up with a title that makes me think, why didn't I think of this? It's like one of those, why didn't I have a V8? You know, why didn't I think of this 10 years ago? I called the book, shrinking the heroes and so and that was like that was my i was happy about that wordplay so wordplay is is just you know it's so delightful and i and it's and it's fun and it relates you know you we've talked a lot about etymology and yeah. you get to pack these treasures in and look at you with this awesome name i mean ahmed best yeah. and you think like to have the surname best i mean <laughs> it literally can't get better yeah yeah <laughs> It's it's gotten me in and out of situations in the past. <laughs> That's that <way>. great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you think? Because we're you're a you're a very much a multi hyphenate, and yes. it, it it seems as if all your um, interests and all the things that you do kind of feed each other. Yes. And you've seen so many things, as uh, you know, as well as being an educator and talking and, and running uh, workshops and groups and. You know, being a, an accomplished uh, media uh, professional, how do you think we can decolonize this future idea? What can we do on uh, as not only as people who speak in public, but what are the micro things that we can start doing um, in our everyday lives as storytellers uh, or as people just with ideas that are different from what the general idea of who we are? is how do we yeah. start decolonizing that idea of future and create a future that that includes us not in a way that we need to be accepted right <laughs> right but in a way where we define what that future is yes where we're instead of sitting at the communications console we're in the captain's chair yes we're the yeah. gatekeeper 
That's right. Well, <clears throat> you know, in my novel, The Alchemist of Cush, the characters uh, take on a, a philosophy of a group called the Alchemists, also called the Street Falcons. And one of their core principles is the idea of replace, elevate. So when people, as, as we are in our generation and many other people are trained, especially when you're young and political, you, you kind of focus yourself on, you know, seeking and destroying evil, which, you know, may amount to writing about it. Um, and, you know, in school, you get encouraged to think that when you write about it, that's the same thing as changing the world. But it's only one step. And the thing about focusing on evil is that um, you become evil centric. It takes over your life. Uh, and you forget about what did you actually want to make once the evil's gone. And when you look at the history of a variety of revolutions, you see that the people who focused on destroying their enemies, if they take power, they often just become new oppressors. And in many national liberation struggles, the men, and I emphasize males, running the struggle, uh, or at least who've seized power in the struggle, think of some place like, let's say, the, um, the Ayatollah and his followers in Iran, because they needed a revolution. Um, against a U.S.-backed murderous dictatorship. But what you get is the installation of, uh, of an extremely misogynist, homophobic, uh, and rigidly uh, uh, adhering to only one brand of Islam. All the other Muslims were also oppressed. So all of those things are, are destructive and toxic. Now, on the other hand, you think about what we do, what we try to do as artists. Every time we try to make people say, wow, or make them laugh, or make them have a real moment of 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 uh, uh, you know empathy with characters and shed some tears and 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 dazzle them and say wow. We're trying to create experiences that make them grateful that they're alive, and make them wanting to when the show is over, as an example, or the workshop is let's say when the show is over, when they go out to dinner or coffee. They are having an awesome conversation, and maybe they're thinking about, what should we do now? I want to do a show, or I want to do that thing. Like, we just watched this great improv show about guerrilla gardeners. I want to make a guerrilla garden, you know. And for listeners, I'm talking about people who are not gorillas, but rather people who garden in un unexpected places, you know. So <clears throat> I think the first thing is we need to continually share examples of awesomeness because those are so inspiring and especially when we're demoralized by the rise of international fascism that I think you and I didn't grow up expecting to see but is now clearly here. Um, when we think about environmental devastation and all kinds of other threats, the only way we can keep going is if we are inspired by realistic plans. And they can't, they, they have to be a combination of the local and the micro with the international that we will actually team up to do. So you can't just be your own individual consumer choices. I will buy myself a, a electric car and now my hands are clean. It's like, no, look, get the car, that's great, you know. But also, what can you do with other people who can't afford a car, but can you make uh, food locally sourced? Can you build community gardens? I'm just emphasizing the gardens because Almost everybody can do this, including in places like Detroit and Los Angeles, where a great number of African-Americans are doing amazing work. And you can find out about their stuff on TED and other sites or just Google it. And then there's the, the, the big stuff we have to do. But every time you share those stories, you decolonize people's imaginations. And what I prefer to think of it as is you build, as it's called in The Alchemist of Kush, you build the golden fortress. You make the place that you want to see exist. 
You create it so that it is shining and resplendent and beautiful and it draws people to it. Not so they go like, oh, I feel so weighed down by my liberal guilt, but rather they go like, oh, that is awesome. I want to join. That's the reaction that we want. You know, people talk about allies and I think, look, allies uh, and they say allyship. It's like, look, you know what? Let's talk about alliances. Alliances as defined in very formal structures. You help me when I'm in danger. I help you when you're in danger. You let me down, I'm gonna let you down. We are gonna group together in a formal alliance to build awesome stuff. Now, when it comes to defending ourselves, that's where we talk in that real alliance terms because I wanna make it clear that somebody who just declares himself your ally, there's no guarantee he's ever gonna follow through on anything you actually need. But when it's a formal relationship that you can establish through politics and trade and, and, and contracts in the arts, you can get real work done. But you know, just back to the sharing, everybody can do this every day on social media. Many days I fail and I say I share way more uh, bad news stories. But the more that we get used to looking, sharing all the good news stories that we get and looking for them and sharing those, we can retrain ourselves. And I got to kick myself every day that I fail on this, but we can do it. And the arts is one of the best places because especially as you talked about roots, you know, you made it clear. We, many of us knew these things in dry historical terms. Although, as you know, many people had illusions about some wonderful, happy place that they called the Old South where the darkies sang songs all day. And I say, like, stop calling it by these, you know, these saccharine terms. What you mean is a continent-wide rape gulag because that's what it actually was. But when we actually share what we can really do, what we can really create, we become, through our art, like roots could install a degree of horror and terror in us. But Black Panther could install so much joy and celebration and fascination and the desire to make real what we saw there. And even in, as much as I adore Star Trek, it had many flaws. But you think of, like, Lieutenant Uhura was such an important character, and I know that you know this story, that even though Nichelle Nichols had every right to want to quit the show because she did not get enough lines and enough stories, her biggest fan of all, Martin Luther King Jr., said, you got to stay on the show. And then Mae Jemison sees her, says, I want to be Lieutenant, speaking as a Canadian, Lieutenant Uhura. And so she becomes up, becomes a medical doctor, and becomes an astronaut. And that's just one one very, you know, tiny character who never got anywhere near the number of lines that she deserved. So if you can do that with one character, can you imagine what's going to happen? I don't know if you have kids, but you know, when, when, okay, you do. So we both have kids. Can you imagine, assuming we still have a planet, what our kids will become having been raised with Black Panther and like a whole generation of kids who grew up dreaming of Black Panther and, and also for all the non-African children, who would grow up saying like, yes, of course, this is what African people are like. And it will never occur to them not to do economic, intellectual, political and other alliances. You know, like that is the world that we can make, especially through our art, that even the best history books and manuals and, and pamphlets and, and, you know, uh, manifestos can never do because it's through the arts that things become truly emotionally alive in our intelligence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful sentiment to to close on. Where can we find 
everything that you do. Where are you in the, on the internets, on the shelves? Where, where can we get some more information about Minister Faust? Well, thank you. Well, of course, everybody can go to ministerfaust.com, and that really is the best, easiest way to find it. Once you get to ministerfaust.com, you'll you'll find links to uh, my eBooks, so you can start reading them immediately. You'll, you can order my uh, paperbacks. Uh, you can certainly ask your, your local independent bookstore to bring them in. And if you want to sign up my uh, sequel novel to The Coyote Kings, which is The Coyote Kings versus The Myconauts of Plutonium City, I'm actually writing it as a serialized novel. And, you know, uh, Chuck D, uh, by, by which I mean uh, Charles Dickens, uh, was also a, uh, a person who uh, released his novels in segments. So uh, it's a long tradition. And so if people want to sign up for that, that they can. And, you know, you'll also find a lot like I got a TED talk and I've got a TEDx talk and I've got videos and all kinds of stuff. And you can get it all through through ministerfaust.com. Ministerfaust.com. Thank you so much, Minister Faust, for for joining us. Um, I hope everyone checks out Afrotopianism um, and the words that you said have just been so incredibly inspiring. Really, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. This was absolutely one of the, the best times I've ever had. And, you know, you are like, I often expect people really good in one area. I, I'm just going to assume like, nah, there's no way they're going to be good in another area. That's like, that's too much to ask for. And like, man, you are a hell of an interviewer. So I hope much. that you just continue to, you know, reach greater and greater heights in, in, in this and all the other aspects of your career. Thank you so much. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Best on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.